For the week of Wednesday, December 5th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk first with Naveed Jamali. From 2005 to 2008, Jamali worked as a double agent for the FBI, helping bring down a Russian intelligence operation in New York. He's since relocated to Seattle and is now running for Seattle City Council in District 7. And he hopes to use his objective-based work in naval intelligence to create a positive change for Seattle. What we want to do is make this a, a city where people come for opportunity, but they stay because it's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to raise a family. We also talk with Jamali about his work as a spy and about what he's learned about Russian intelligence operations, much of which he shared before the House Intelligence Committee. They are also, as we're seeing today, very, very reliant on recruiting actual people. And they are incredibly skilled at targeting people, understanding what makes that the psychology of that individual targeting. And my goodness, are we not seeing that in spades with the news that is slowly coming out about Trump and and, and his cabal. We also talked with the newly elected chair of the King County Democrats, Shasti Conrad, who ran with a slate of progressive candidates under the banner Vision 2020. Conrad has a transformative view of the role of the Democratic Party, particularly as it interfaces and collaborates with grassroots groups like Indivisible. What she doesn't want to see happen is... When it comes down to October or November, suddenly the party reaches out and says, okay, yeah, thanks for all those months of organizing, but now we're going to do it our way. But actually start these relationships now, start building these partnerships, asking how we can help support, help amplify the work that groups like Indivisible are doing. That's all ahead. So stay with us. My guest, Naveed Jamali, is a candidate for Seattle City Council in District 7, which includes Downtown, Belltown, Queen Anne, and Magnolia. Previously, Jamali was a commentator for MSNBC talking about national security issues, drawing from his work as a former FBI double agent, an experience he chronicled in his book, How to Catch a Russian Spy. Naveed Jamali, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So, you know, I have to start by saying I have interviewed a ton of candidates for office on this show, and your background is by far uh, the most interesting. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. (laughs) Well, so what moved you then to run for Seattle City Council? You know, I I think that uh, one of the big things is working on the national stage and sort of seeing the discord, the fact that, you know, as someone who was in the national security sphere, that even national security was no longer um, something that would unite um, ideology, left, right, you know, political parties. It would not really bring anyone to one tent to work on consensus. That when I look at the national stage, it's just so fractured right Mm -hmm. now. And my concern was really that to see that happening in Seattle and to really realize that if we're going to make a change, if there's going to be things that are going to be addressed, if we're going to have positive, progressive values, then perhaps the best way was not the national stage, but in fact, local politics. And I really, really believe that. If you're going to positively impact people's lives, what better place to do that than on the local stage? I agree, uh, although I think you have your works cut out for you, uh, creating consensus in, in a city like Seattle. And I think you probably know that going in. But sure. in terms of your approach... You talk about strategic ob- objectives, basically, as, as guiding yes. uh, what you do. Is that one of the ways in which your work in intelligence crosses over into the role of uh, elected politics and specifically the role of a, a city councilman? Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I, I want to look at this as a problem, as being a problem solver. I mean, look, really, the reason that I want wanted to get into Seattle politics is specifically because I think there's an opportunity to make change. And if you're going to make change, and the implication by default is that there is something that needs to be addressed. And if you're going to address something and propose a solution, then first thing you need to do is is define what the problem is. And, and I think that's perhaps one of the biggest failures I, I see with uh, you know city politics here, and specifically the city, current city council, is not that these aren't good people, not that these aren't people that are, you know, that are smart, that have their hearts in the right places. It is just simply a failure to identify the problem for which they're solving. They'll, they'll go right to the minutia of it, and they'll fail to sort of identify this context. And so that's why I start with a strategic vision. What exactly is the vision for Seattle? What exactly is the problem that we are addressing? 
Yeah. And that obviously is something that you learned as an intelligence officer, that in order to uh, achieve what you're after, you have to make it goal oriented. So let's break down a few of the things that you talk about on your campaign website. Uh, One of the first things that you note is that Seattle is a city in transition. I think that's uh, inarguable. Um, Many people are nervous it's transitioning in the direction of a city like, say, San Francisco, which has become Mm -hmm. a technology hub, but at the expense of its middle and working class residents. And this is a question that I think is particularly pertinent to you since your district would include downtown. So how do you balance the needs of a technological economy while still preserving a city's middle class and its affordability and and really its its character? I think that's that's exactly right. When we think about San Francisco and the surrounding areas, the biggest challenge that Seattle faces in regards to transition is that we have done a fantastic, you know, we've had experienced tremendous growth. We've had people like me who've come to Seattle for opportunity. The issue now is that we can no longer be a transient city where people come here for one to two years, have no vested interest and move on. What we want to do is make this a, a city where people come for opportunity, but they stay because it's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to raise a family. It's a wonderful place to sort of go to the different stations of, of life. And I think that when we talk about affordability, I move to the term livability. We need to make this a city that is livable for all, you know, both middle class, and it needs to be a city that can grow with you as you progress in your life. And that leads into another one of your platforms, which is the issue of infrastructure. So if you're talking about creating a city where people are going to want to stay, that means a significant amount of investment on things like uh, infrastructure. So where do you see that fitting in? And I guess more importantly, where do you see the money coming from to uh, to build up the needed infrastructure in Seattle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So – you know, look, I, the first thing to say as an outlier here is that when it comes to infrastructure, when you look at any major tier one city, there is clearly a strong part, partnership with the federal government. So uh, city council, that's not something you get impact, but it's worth just noting that. Look, one of the things, Stefan, that I, that I propose and I feel very strongly is that it's a question of something as simple, or I shouldn't say simple, but something specifically like the size of the Seattle Police Department. You know, I think that when we, you talk about San Francisco, uh, you talk about Boston. These are somewhat comparable cities in that they are close. Now, in both geography and population, Seattle is significantly larger than both. Yet, when we think about things on the enforcement side, when we think about things like response time, when we think about things like, honestly, like police reform, we think about you know, use of force. I look at this and say, we are understaffed. We are a police force that has 1,300 police officers versus Boston and San Francisco, which are well over 2,000. And I think that a smaller force that relies on you know tens and twenty million dollars of overtime um, is clearly an indication that we don't have enough cops. So where do we get the money? Where do we do this? Well, the first thing is to start with the consensus that this is something when we talk about infrastructure, that this is something that the city needs. And I, I happen to believe it is, but at this point, I'm you know willing to listen to, to data that suggests otherwise. But again, we're a comparable city. So if we do go forward, if we do go forward with saying we need to have more police officers. Where do we get this money? One of the things that I'm looking at is the $90 million uh, budget that we put towards homeless services. And, and I do want to ask you about that specifically. You know, Your strategic objective there is obviously reducing the number of homeless people. But absolutely. How, but how do you get there? Yeah, okay. So one of the things I spent a lot of time with some of the uh, charities uh, talking about homelessness, and my concern about homelessness is, you know, look, I think we all agree, um, you know, tents and RVs are, are neither the right place for the city of Seattle for having people to live in. It's not the right place for the people that are living there. It, it's not something that anyone wants. The question is, what do we do uh, and to include the people that live in them? It's, the question is, what do we do about it? And for me, looking at the problem, I think that what's happening is the tents and the RVs represent the tip of the iceberg. They represent the visual part that we all see. But they don't represent the totality of, this, of the problem. And I think, again, in discussions and sort of sort of collecting information, one of the things that concerns me is the concept of prevention, that this idea that there are people who are housing insecure, housing unstable, you know, single parents who are, who are renting, who are a medical bill away from not being able to pay rent, from uh, a working uh, single person who works an hourly job and breaks an arm 
can't cover uh, insurance, can't go back to work, and potentially could lose their housing. These are people that we want to keep housed. These are places where we want to focus some of that preventative health, that preventative uh, effort, not because it's it also just happens to be the right thing to do, but also from a financial set sense, it's much more cost effective to help someone stay in their home than it is to put them back in a home once they've lost it. And look, there's another part of this, which is once someone is homeless, the, the incident, the likelihood of, of both uh, drug addiction and mental illness increase dramatically. So it's the benefit of really looking at preventative things. Why is this problem happening? How can we help people before they hit the levels, you know, the throes of deep Deep homelessness. Since you're talking about uh, public health issues, you just tweeted uh, this morning, and we are recording, I should mention, on Tuesday, December 4th, you tweeted that you are against safe injection sites for the drug-addicted population. Uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. advocates tend to frame this as a public health issue, saying that most most addicts are going to continue to use, and so offering them a safe injection site prevents the spread of needle-borne illnesses like uh, HIV and hepatitis, and that they can also potentially save lives if people overdose. How do you respond to that? Yes, and, and there is a public health concern. I think they're responding in two ways. First is, what is the priority here? And look, we are a city of uh, limited means, limited resources, and limited time. And so I think that from a standpoint of a priority, uh, I want to solve, I want to help people. I want to make sure there are resources. I want to make sure the right facilities. I am concerned that this is, again, a, a very minute tactical problem that is not addressing the larger problem as a whole, right? So how, why are people becoming homeless? Why are people moving into drug addiction, whether it's opioids uh, or whatever it is? Like That's where the focus should be. And I, what I'm getting at is my concern is that these issues have been framed by these very like minute solutions. And as a result, we're losing sight of the context. So I wanna make sure that there are resources. I do not wanna criminalize uh, poverty. I do not wanna criminalize addiction. You don't want to criminalize mental health. I'm very, very concerned about those three things, but I am concerned about it in a way that I think that we have gone down a rabbit hole where we have lost sight about the tactical, folks on the tactical solution, not thinking about the strategic. So when we think about, you know, safe injection sites, what exactly is the problem that we're trying to solve? I would say we need to have a more coherent approach, much as the country would agree that how do we approach drug addiction? What are the causes of this? How can we help people before you know, at-risk people before they get down that road. This is where I want to put the focus. So I feel very strongly that we go to these solutions that are tactical in nature without talking about the context, without talking about the strategic vision. We've already lost the fight. So this is obviously a guiding principle for you. And uh, yeah, I should mention this is early in your candidacy. The the election is a year from now. And policy matters are always works in progress. And so we will look forward to seeing how these issues evolve for you over the next year. So I do want to shift over and talk about your work as a spy uh, because it is fascinating. Uh, So you were a Navy Reserve intelligence officer. But when you went to work for the FBI as a double agent passing secrets to the GRU, uh, which is the Russian intelligence agency, uh, you say in your book that you were an NYU grad who was married and living on the Upper West Side in New York. So talk about how and why you got this assignment. You know, like like many of these things, it's a story that's so crazy that it's it can't be anything but true. Mm. Um, you know, I, as you said, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I am this. I'm a first generation American. I'm the son of two immigrants, and you know, being that sort of first American uh, identity is a really interesting thing. It's an important thing, and for me, as long as I can remember, I wanted to be as American as possible. So when September 11th happened, I was I was working at Harvard and. I just felt this really strong urge to do something that this sort of meaningful g- career that I had in, in technology, it just was redefined literally overnight. And I wanted to found this program in the U.S. Navy as an intelligence officer applied, did not get in, um, and you know really thought that was sort of heartbroken. And I had this great recruiter who said, "Navita, this is something you want. You know, don't give up. Apply again. The only thing." that you need to do in your subsequent application is to show change. And I, you know, I got into grad school, but it really wasn't for me. And I, I came up with this harebrained idea that perhaps I could approach the FBI who had been coming to my parents' uh, government contracting uh, company and um, offer to help them with these Russians, these Russian spies that have been also been coming there. And I literally, Stefan, thought of this as, getting a letter of recommendation mm. from the FBI so I can get into the Navy. And that's exactly 
day zero, before I ever met with any Russians, I sat down with two FBI agents and basically said this, this naive sort of 20-something kid having no idea what he was doing. I basically proposed that I would help them uh, with the Russians in exchange for a letter of recommendation so I'd become an intelligence <laughs> officer. And that started and, – and I often joke like that. I really wish I'd asked for more, but, you know, what can you do? Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, so I started really a three-year odyssey um, of working undercover for the FBI uh, against Russian intelligence. And it's – even to this day, I, I learned bits and pieces of the – again, this idea of context, which is an important word. You know, when you work in these missions and these operations – a lot of people might see individual pieces, but few of them actually see how those pieces go together, the entire puzzle. And now that it's been, you know, several years, I'm starting to learn, learn, learn much, much more about what the target was, what the, why this was so important, why at the end of the operation, the team was awarded National Intelligence Medal, presented in person by the Director of National Intelligence, why Bob Mueller signed my letter of commendation. I mean, oh, well. it, the piece, the pieces start to fall together. Well, I do want to talk about some of the insights that you gained through your work, uh, particularly in context of the situation that we're uh, currently in. But I do want to just ask a couple more questions about your sure, experiences. Please. So, uh, you know, in the book, uh, you pass American secrets to a Russian diplomat. And I'm curious how you gained his trust. So you talk in the book about how um, during one of your earliest uh, interactions, you accidentally slammed the guy's head in the trunk of a car. So how did you <laughs> come back from that to, to gain his trust? Yeah, you know, it's really important that I think in the context of today's, you know, uh, the Trump administration, it's really important to understand that the Russians are interested in stealing secrets and collecting intelligence against the United States. And they do so simply because they see the U.S. as their main adversary. So their entire intelligence structure is aligned against collecting intelligence against us and, and running active operations. So it's important that that context is there is a clear desire and intent to collect and do the United States harm using intel, active intelligence. So yes, when I do, so they targeted me in large part because they saw that there was a value and even slight missteps, <laughs> like slamming the trunk into the head of a, of a GRU, uh, you know, Navy captain didn't dissuade them. They are really, really committed to this mission. They are really committed to cultivating people because at the end of the day, we focus on cyber. We focus, you know, this is the big thing in press that, you know, people steal secrets using, you know, technology, but the reality is that's not the case. The best way to steal secrets is by co-opting or recruiting an individual who already has access. And through that legitimate access, the foreign intelligence service too has access and you can recruit people for a number of reasons. But at the end of the day, the Russians are really committed to that concept. Yeah, they're they're highly motivated, um, as, as I think we've certainly seen uh, over the, the course of, of the last couple of years. You know, before we move on, uh, something I've always wanted to ask, when you do work as a double agent, is there always a little bit of a cloud of suspicion over you? Like, I don't know how mm-hmm. if somebody who, uh, say, has an affair and then marries the person that they had an affair with, that they, they might not always <laughs> trust their new spouse. Uh, are double agents treated with suspicion in the intelligence community? Well, so I can tell you that there's a, you know, for the Office of Naval Intelligence and and many other intelligence agencies, there's always a saying, you know, in God we trust, everyone else we polygraph, polygraph, (laughs) trust but verify. Trust but verify, that's a Reagan uh, saying, yeah. That's right. So there is this concept, and it goes both with the Russians and it goes both with the FBI um, and anyone else, that trust is something that's earned, not given. And look, the FBI for that point – when I was meeting with the Russians early on, I was meeting with them in uh, an open space, not recording. At a certain point, and I would come back and I would debrief, be debriefed by the FBI almost immediately after the meeting, surveillance. But in the end, a lot of times the way that I would meet with the, with the Russians, they couldn't be sure, they couldn't necessarily record what I was saying. So they would have to take my word as to what happened. Mm. Now, that all changed when I started recording our meetings and and with the Russians and they could actually compare what I was saying against the transcript. So, and they did that very purposely. So you're right. It's not a question of because you're a double agent, you're not trusted. And in fact, I will tell you that as an intelligence source, so someone who tells an intelligence agency, I am here, I see this, 
part of the rubric, sort of part of the paradigm is going to be how trustworthy is this person's information? Right. Well, they've been right before. And yes, that, so it's not so much as a double agent. It's as an asset, as an, as an intelligence source. How trusted are you as a source? And I think that is something, look, for those who know what curveball is back in the Iraq war, which is one of the reasons that we invaded Iraq, you know, this, this, uh, someone who claimed to be uh, working on Saddam's chemical weapon. Yeah, yeah. Remind us, fill that out for listeners a, a little bit. So Curveball was this uh, an Iraqi who claimed to be uh, a weapons uh, someone who was working on Saddam's nuclear and biological weapon, um, and he was brought to the UK and shared with the Americans, and, and was basically his description of Saddam's weapons program was the impetus for you know the invasion of Iraq. And it turns out this guy was just he had no connection to chemical weapons; he was fabricating most of the stuff. But nonetheless, he was a trusted source. Whether whether working for the FBI or or in this case, you know clandestinely and, and uh, working for the Russians, it's the same process. They're going to look at you as a source and they're going to rate your trustworthiness as a source. And so my job was to pass the Russian sniff, the test, sniff test. The Russians rated me as a trustworthy source. And so they started tasking me. They started collecting intelligence from me. So in order to build that I will ask you, do you know what the yeah. criteria was for them to rate you as trustworthy? It was as something in large part was Oleg Kulikov, who was my case ha- case manager, my case my handler. In fact, the Russian case, the Russian handler, rather, case officer. Excuse me. Um, it was a large part of this was his reports back to the Russian government, back to the Russian GRU command about whether he trusted me. And so, basically, it's sort of like a Donnie Brasco moment. I was a, mm. I was an FBI made man in the Russian intelligence family. I was a tr- I became a trusted source. And once you're a trusted source and they start taking intelligence from you and they start listening to you and you turn out to be one of the bad guys in their eyes, um, it's a huge crippling defeat when it's eventually unmasked. Well, so because we know what Russians are capable of doing to people who cross them, I will just ask you candidly, do, do you ever fear for your safety? I don't feel, although I have, I've had a few run-ins uh, with Russians, including one that I had to report to, uh, to investigators. Um, I don't fear for my physical safety simply because there is an un- unspoken rule, you know, even with uh, the attempted assassination of Skripal in, uh, in the UK, yeah. that you don't, you don't go after people. Um, what I do worry about, though, is that the Russians would clearly and certainly make an attempt um, to harm my reputation, that this is, we saw this with the Podesta emails and the Hillary Clinton emails, that there is a, you know, it is not beyond them attempt to, you know, do some online character assassination and to sort of put memes out there or things to that effect. And I've seen that. Um, that's the part that I do where it looks running for office. That is something that concerns me. Um, as a private citizen, it's certainly something that concerns me. But I think that generally speaking, the Russians, would have no need to do anything to me. And simply th- their mindset is that if they, they don't want to bring any attention to me. So, you know, if I, God forbid, walk across the street and get hit by a bus, uh, everyone's going to blame Russia. And, you know, that puts uncomfortable questions to them. I don't think they want that. Well, the ruining of reputations is part of what you refer to as the intelligence Cold War. Um, and you've had some things to say about that. Um, I, I will just frame this by saying um, you were invited last year to brief the House Intelligence Committee about Russian interference in the 2016 election. I will also note that uh, the Republicans on the panel all boycotted that meeting. But give us an idea of what you talked about at that hearing. What sorts of insight did the work that you did as a double agent against the GRU give you into the sorts of tactics that Russia has ultimately used against the U.S. in the, the 2016 election and beyond? You know, I, I think that it's it's a very difficult thing for the average American uh, to include the average congressperson uh, to understand that after the fall of the, of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, that Russia was really a threat. And I think so part of the discussion was as simple as, hey, this is a threat. This was a, they are a threat. They have a concerted and committed effort to cause us harm because of how they view us. They view the United States very differently than we viewed Russia pre-2016. And I think that putting, again, that contextual understanding. So a lot of my effort was explaining to the, to the Democrats who attended that this is a pervasive, deep 
threat, that the Russians are committed, that technology is part of it, but they are also, as we're seeing today, very, very reliant on recruiting actual people, and that the recruitment process is something that has not changed since the days of the Cold War, and they are incredibly skilled at targeting people, understanding what makes that the psychology of that individual targeting, figuring out what the approach is, and figuring out how to recruit them. And my goodness, are we not seeing that in spades with the news that is slowly coming out about uh, the you know Trump and 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 his and his uh, I'll say his cabal, but yeah. that is certainly something that they were interested in. Yeah, it's it's actually extraordinarily pertinent considering uh, as the revelations start to come out, the number of people that they seem to have been able to convert as assets. So you have recently said that you feel that while the Mueller investigation into Trump is very important, that it's not doing anything to combat what we That's have right. referred to as the intelligence Cold War with Russia, uh, which you feel that we're losing. And this is a very complicated question, obviously, and, and you write about sure. this in uh, a new epilogue in your book. But what do you feel that the U.S. should be doing to step up its efforts here? So there is the question of criminality that surrounds Donald Trump and, and Michael Cohen and, and everyone else associated with him. That is a, a very real question. It is one that is worthy of a, of a thorough investigation. And I'm very glad that Bob Mueller is doing that. It's important for us to understand that while that has huge implications in terms of the the fairness, the objectivity, just the simple idea that no one is above the law, and especially the the sanctity of our institutions, sure. um, it, it does not address what I see, and I'm becoming fast concerned, was an, a, a very deliberate effort by the Russians that was either not detected or detected and failed to be stopped by our intelligence community, which is a totally separate question. This is not a partisan one. This is not a Democratic versus Republican. This is a question of, is Russia was Russia prioritized as an intelligence threat? Um, if it wasn't, why wasn't it? Um, if it was, did we fail to detect this? If we didn't fail to detect it, then the question is, why do we fail to neutralize it? No, again, there's a mistake. There's a mistake that's being made here. Counterintelligence operations do not result in perp walks. They do not result in court cases. Um, they don't result in someone being handcuffed. They result in stopping that operation. And nine times out of 10, we are never, in fact, probably 10 times out of 10, you are never going to hear about those operations because they're successful and they were kept quiet. And I'm very concerned that we are, you know, we're putting, while the Mueller investigation is hugely important, that it's leaving off the other part of this equation, which is why did this happen? It did not happen because of just because of Donald Trump. It was perhaps, as the evidence starts coming out, so successful because of Donald Trump. But the Russians planned this out. They were able to make contact with people like Michael Flynn. They were able to make contact potentially with people like Roger Stone. They were able to do this under the watch of the FBI and, and other intelligence agencies. How did that happen? Why weren't we able to stop it? These are fair questions. These are objective questions. Well, absolutely. And, and you, you know, you talk about this being an ongoing problem. Yes. So yes. I'll, then I'll just further ask, and you're touching on this, but what more do U.S. agencies, in your opinion, need to be doing to address future threats? I think that this is going to be – look, we saw with terrorism. How do we – we don't – the United States does not have a domestic intelligence service, right? We, we're a constitution, constitutional country. We, we have rule of law. You know, China and Russia don't worry about FISA warrants. If you go to China and Russia and they want to surveil you, they just surveil you. They don't worry about the constitutionality or the legality of it. Yeah. We're a very different country, so we have to balance threats that are internal with the rule of law. And I think that's – you know, this is always – rightfully so, always going to be a problem with law enforcement. Um, now, the, the issue going forward is that it's uh, Americans should understand that Russia, just as we saw with Oleg, just as I saw with Oleg, they have people here in the United States whose job it is to target people for recruitment. And the reason they're targeting those people for recruitment is twofold. One, to use them to collect intelligence, which is a fancy word of saying spying. Mm -hmm. And the second is to use them as an extension, as an asset. So potentially to go in and influence policy in favor of the of the Russian, potentially to go in and, and disrupt things, that this is a pervasive ongoing threat that, you know, even if we indict Donald Trump, it does not remove that Russian capability to sure. come into the United States to uh, target people, recruit them and task and direct them. And I think that's the thing that concerns me so much is that 
we have not taken away the Russian capability to do those nefarious activities. Well, so I will just ask you one last question before I let you go. Um, I understand that your book is being made into a film, and so I will ask the question that I think uh, everybody would want to know if their book were being made into a film, and that is, do you know who's going to play you? That is a very good – I do not know. I have heard (laughs) different things. Um, You know, it's – what I will say is I obviously have no choice um, as to who gets to play me, but I would hope that, you know, part of this story that's so important is that it is about a first generation American, someone who is brown. Um, and so much of this has to do with identity. And the reason that I put myself in here is really because of a desire to be American. So I hope that whoever they cast can embody that concept, the importance of first generation America, the importance of, of someone who's brown, the importance of identity. These are such critical parts, and especially in this day and age, it's so important for, for Americans to realize that, you know, patriotism and loyalty and dedication and and duty, they can be embodied by many, many different people in this great country. And, you know, to see a face that isn't perhaps what they always think, you know, one might look like. And I, I, that, that does this sort of stuff. I think that's so important. So I hope, I hope Hollywood eventually does the right thing and and casts a, you know, cast someone who embodied those values. But again, I unfortunately have uh, have no say. Otherwise, I would throw your your hat in the ring. Honestly, oh, oh well, thank you very much. <laughs> I don't think that I uh, maybe embody those same sorts of very very. They make an exception. They yeah, make an maybe exception. maybe, but uh, you know, but you do make a great point uh, and a very salient point about uh, patriotism and really what it means to be American, uh, coming in so many bases and and forms. Yeah. Naveed Jamali is a candidate for Seattle City Council in District 7, and I will mention that his book, How to Catch a Russian Spy, is now available on paperback from Simon & Schuster. Naveed Jamali, it has been such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us, man. You got it. Thank you. So last Saturday, the King County Democrats elected new leadership in their reorganization. And in an exciting turn, a slate of progressive candidates known collectively as Vision 2020 swept the top spots, winning every position from chair to fourth vice chair. And here to talk about all of this is the newly elected chair, who I should mention received 76 percent of the vote, Shasti Conrad. Shasti Conrad, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Yeah. So, you know, I, I want to start by talking about Vision 2020. And we can talk about what the group stands for in a moment. But I'm curious about the impetus to assemble a slate of candidates to run for leadership the way that you did. And I should mention that you were previously the first vice chair for the King County Democrats uh, before the yes. reorg. Um, so how did you conceive of putting a slate of candidates together, uh, complete with statement of purpose and actually a website? That's That's not usually done, is it? Um, yes, well, you know, I've I've been a part of the organization for the for the last year, and and I've gotten to know you know a number of the folks who have been a part of the county party as well as the sort of Democratic Party in this region for you know some of them for many 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 years. And as I listened and 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 learned from them, what I kept seeing was that a lot of times the leadership team hadn't come in on a full vision for what they wanted to get done, and they really struggled with being able to get you know, to actually implement a plan or get things done. And so we just decided that it was important to have a solid team that was really set on, um, you know, trying to clearly identify and create a mission for the county party to bring in underrepresented communities. And that was really important to have everyone sort of bought into that, into that vision. And then as a leader, I have learned that the best thing that I can do is to, you know, offset, complement, supplement, you know, my own leadership strengths and weaknesses by bringing other people around me who are, who bring other, other skill sets, who bring other perspectives. And so I knew that I very much wanted a team that would balance, you know, sort of what I was bringing to the table. And so we, we went out and looked for folks who represented different parts of the county, who had different experiences, different, you know, um, know, all of us are Democrats, but who come from different parts within the party in terms of a spectrum of, you know, progressives who were, you know, staunchly Bernie supporters, even a few folks who had been on the Hillary campaign. So, you know, it was really, it was purposeful in wanting to to build a team and run a team and set forth that, that vision for the 
for the county party. Well, it's an exciting uh, unified vision, but as you say, you're bringing a lot of diversity to the table as well. Um, So let's just talk a little bit about what Vision 2020 stands for. So the tagline is inclusive, collaborative, focused. Uh, You've said that Vision 2020 is about, uh, among other things, increasing fundraising, supporting legislative district leadership, uh, expanding outreach to underrepresented communities, and then retaining the, uh, the huge number of volunteers from 2018 and keeping them engaged through 2020. So let's just take a couple of these. Um, first, you have acknowledged that membership uh, in the King County Dems has dropped over the last couple of years. Uh, in a piece that you did with a stranger, you said, quote, the party hasn't been great at giving people something tangible. What did you mean by that? Well, what I I came back into the party, you know, through the the 2016 election, and you know, when I first started going to, I'm from the 37th legislative district, so when I first started going to our legislative district meetings, and then I would, you know, sort of started to go to some of the other legislative district parties um, meetings. There were hundreds of people, you know, in the in the winter of 2016 and 2017. There are hundred people, hundreds of people at these meetings, and then over the course of the last two years, I've watched as those numbers have dwindled and what i've what i've seen and heard is that people are people wanted to people wanted to get to work you know people wanted people were upset and destabilized from the 2016 elections and you know they were looking to the democratic party as an avenue with which to you know fight the trump administration to stand up for what they believed in to you know sort of they wanted to get their hands dirty and i and i what I saw was that we spent a lot of time at these meetings, you know, talking about sort of general party business or, you know, arguing with each other about resolutions. And, and right. And people giving, wanted action. Yeah. People wanted action. I mean, indivisible, you know, is 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 the is, has become the model for being able to connect people with direct opportunities for organizing and for action. And I saw, you know, during the 2018 cycle, so many when I would go to campaign offices and go to door knock and whatnot, so many new faces who had come in through groups like Indivisible that were not going to the party meetings, you know, because that's it was a direct way for them to get to do something. And so that was something that I really felt like we needed to bring back into the party as this should be a space where people feel like they can be useful, they can be put to work, they can do something for their communities, and that the party would would welcome that and help help to be a connector for them in that way. Yeah, well, so you're talking to a lot of indivisible members right now, are and uh, you know you've you've talked explicitly about partnering with grassroots groups. So, you know, just sort of driving that home, how do you see a synergy between groups like indivisible, which of course, as as you know, is really instrumental in driving a voter turnout in the midterm. Um, and the King County Dems, is it just a matter of letting those people know that they are welcome to be part of the King County Dems and, and bringing them into the fold? I mean, I think that is I think that is step one. And, and we're doing that in part by, you know, one of the members of our slate who was elected um, as a vice chair is Jen Carter. Yeah, who, she's awesome. You know, is, <laughs> who is awesome and done incredible work in the fifth LD and for the you know eighth congressional district, really, you know, working as a as a partner and a lead with the indivisible groups out there. And, you know, Chris Petzold was one of our um, endorsers. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's incredible and within yes, indivisible. So, you know, a lot of it is also just going to the to those leaders and 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 saying what worked and how how was the party there for you and how was the party not there for you and how can the party how can the party help support the work that you're doing the i'm the i'm the type of person where i'm okay if people are doing that work in and other types of communities and different types of groups as long as when it's time to go you know to go and vote and to and to do the work that they know that they are that the Democratic Party supports them, is with them, and they're, they feel like a connection to what the Democratic Party is doing. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's creating an authentic partnership where it's not just, you know, when it comes down to October or November, suddenly the party reaches out and says, okay, yeah, thanks for all those months of organizing, but now it's, we're going to do it our way. Let's, we're just going to take over, you know, kind of what you've been doing, but actually start these relationships now, start building these partnerships, asking how we can help support, help amplify the work that groups like Indivisible are doing and make sure that everyone who's a part of these groups um, feel that they are that they have a, a safe place to be and a, and a welcome a welcome uh, county party that wants to support the work that they that they want to do that they're excited to do. 
I will just tell you that if we were recording this live, you would be receiving a standing ovation right now. <laughs> that is exactly what uh, I know that, that so many leaders and uh, rank-and-file members uh, in grassroots groups exactly want to hear from uh, the, the Democratic Party. So that's awesome. Uh, you know, you uh, also are focused on engaging voters of color in King County. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel these populations haven't been as engaged with Democratic politics, and how do you get them on board? Mm-hmm. Great questions. I think a lot of it is that people of color are often taken for granted by obviously by both parties. But I think even the Democrats sort of assume that, you know, those those folks, that the policies should speak to them, that the value should speak to people of color. So therefore, it's just an assumption that they will that they'll vote when it's time to vote. And and where I stand is that's not good enough. We can do better by actually starting to reach out to those community leaders, finding the gems of, you know, people who who speak to their communities. I think a lot of times we we go to them with a sort of vision or a plan that's just about co-option. And that's not I don't I want I want folks to feel empowered to speak to their communities and again to know that they they have a welcome place here within the Democratic Party. Um, when I was running this past week um, for for chair, I specifically went and sought out endorsements from groups like One America, mm-hmm. um, with the Muslim um, American Association, with the NAACP, um, with the Young Democrats, specifically to go and and know that you know, I, that I'm with them. I'm with the slate is with them from the get go that these relationships start, start now. And I think also it's about bench building. It's about giving folks opportunities to start to develop the skill sets, to be able to run for these offices. Um, you know, in 2019, we have a, a whole bunch of municipal elections and, you know, we have roles like fire commissioner and, you know, all the way up to, you know, city council members right. that we're going to be looking for talent. And so, you know, we should be looking to our communities of color to represent their communities and give them these opportunities to get their names out there and to get the support and start to build their their resume. Well, since you're talking about municipal races, um, I know that you are going to focus on legislative races, but you have said that you want to increase focus on municipal races. And it's interesting, you know, I think part of the success of a group like the Tea Party was that they worked really effectively at the municipal level across the country and built up and built up. Uh, talk about what you think the Democrats can get accomplished at the municipal level, and then specifically where in King County would you like to to target? Well, you know, I think, you know, cities are sort of the first heartbeat for a lot of our communities. And there's a lot of decisions that get that get made within cities that um, directly impact particularly um, communities of color. And so I think that's where it's really important. It's also the municipal elections will give us opportunities to test different types of get out the vote strategies, different ways of organizing that'll help us be prepared for 2020. Um, You know, I'm looking at the races like there's city council seats in SeaTac, um, which is a, uh, there's a lot of pockets of refugee and immigrant communities in that area that I think would be really important to make sure that they're fully represented on something like their city council, you know, Burien, um, pe- you know, people's eyes will be on Seattle, but that's only one city out of the 39 cities that make up King County. So there will be a lot of opportunities to be really making sure that we have diverse folks in in these positions that will be able to make a direct impact on their on their communities. And are you personally involved in cultivating these candidates for these positions? That's the yeah, I mean, you know, that's 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 where we're starting. I mean, I when I in order to receive the endorsement from One America, you know, they had a list of bullet points and and one of them was to really ensure that we were going to be bench building and that we were going to be looking towards communities of color and of immigrants and refugees and really helping to cultivate that talent, um, match them into positions that would be great fits for their communities, and then to help them help them be able to grow and, and connect and network with other people so that they will be able to um, be successful if we are to get them in, elected into these positions. And I, when they sent over that, the list of sort of, you know, stipulations, I said, I wholeheartedly and happily endorse this and support this. And, you know, that's, if I'm elected as chair, you know, that's, 
I am fully committed to doing this. So um, it's really, it's really important to me. It's, it's, um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the first woman of color chair of the King County Democrats. It was something that I was actually going to mention. Yeah. When we get to your background, that was something that I was going to mention. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, I just, I think as we're seeing, as we saw through the 2018 cycle, you know, this, it matters. Representation matters. And, you know, cultivating um, talent as they, you know, come kind of come up through the ranks, it, it, it matters. So it's, it's incredibly important to me. And I just, again, you know, I just want folks to know that our doors are open and that we're, we're trying to connect directly with, with people to let them know that they have a safe space to come into through the county party. Well, so, you know, all of these efforts take funding, they take money. And uh, I know that you've talked about increasing fundraising and the King County Dems have had some fundraising challenges uh, due in part to a uh, $24,000 campaign finance settlement. How are you looking to fill up the coffers? Yes. Um, you know, fundraising has been a challenge, but as I've seen is that part of it was that we didn't have a value position to be able to offer people as to why they should, why they should feel confident in being able to give money to the county party and what exactly was that money going to go to. So as I I tell my team all the time, I say, you know, every, every dollar has to have a plan. You know, I, I, we can't just be raising money for the sake of raising money. We've got to say, this is why we need your dollars. And this is what we're going to do with them. One of our ideas that we have is to fundraise for scholarships for um, underrepresented. Yeah. For underrepresented communities to be able to afford some of these candidate training programs that we have here in the, um, in the region that are, you know, emerge and um, Institute for democratic future. Uh, but they, you know, they cost money. And so that means that only certain kinds of people are able to access them. So we want to try to help with that. Um, you know, we want to be able to host more like volunteer fairs and opportunities where people can get connected with community organizations, but we'll have to pay for the space. And, um, you know, and, and I also am working directly with elected officials. I, you know, was endorsed by a number of state senators and, and, uh, state representatives and you know, a number of them have um, campaign surpluses that we're going to ask if they, you know, they feel confident in the work that we're doing, if they will support, support our vision, support our plan. And so, you know, I've also asked the, the team to commit to doing um, call time, to do fundraising call time every week to, you know, if, if, if we're going to go out and ask people to support, then we have to be willing to put our, you know, put our work into it and, and actually, you know, make these phone calls, build these relationships and ask folks to, to give and get to know us because they, they trust our leadership to do, to do well with the funds that we're asking them to give us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it all goes back to the platform. Um, You know, people want to make sure that the money they're giving is doing great work and uh, it sounds like it's going to be. So uh, like I said, I do want to talk briefly about your background before I let you go. Uh, So you worked as an Obama field organizer in the 2008 campaign as an advanced person, and you actually served as a staffer in the administration. And you know, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that experience and how it's informing your work and your vision now. Yes, I yes, I was I was fresh out of college, out of uh, out of graduated from Seattle University into the um, Obama presidential campaign, and you know, so much of my leadership style comes from from having watched how President Obama built his team, how he worked with talking with people, with making sure that, you know, both his campaign and then once he was in office, how open government could be, but also how much you need a leader to have a strong, a strong vision and a strong plan and that people put their trust into that leader to get good work done. And so, it was incredibly informative. I mean, I was in my early 20s. It was my first real my the White House was one of my first real full time jobs. That's pretty that incredible, <laughs> right? Not everybody gets to say um, that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And 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 I was in the Office of Public Engagement, and you know that office's whole mission was to work with community groups and organizations, and to really bring in different constituencies to make sure that government and our policies were reflective of the people. So, you know, that, that I always come back to the, to the lessons that I learned during that, that time period. And it, they have 
shaped my shaped my entire life. I, you know, I planned on becoming a professor and I was going to, you know, teach, I was going to go to graduate school and be a, you know, be a sociology professor. And then I, I got to DC and I got to the white house and I was like, wow, like we have a real opportunity to change the way that government interacts with the people and that, you know, being led by the first black president, you know, here's an opportunity for people of color to really see themselves reflected. So, you know, that's, that's what I'm still trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do here currently with the with the county party. And it was really, I'm just incredibly grateful for that time. Well, it sounds like it really prepped you to be a uniter and, and bring people together. And uh, just, I, I will just ask you, uh, since you also worked on the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, how you anticipate dealing with some of some of the inner party skirmishes that are probably going to arise as we get closer to the 2020 election? How are you looking at handling that when it comes up? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean that was that experience in 2016 on the Bernie Sanders campaign was also incredibly informative and uh, really showed me the you know boldness of Bernie's vision, um, how much it was. It was also a uniter and that it brought you know this, it built this incredible coalition across you know all kinds of communities um, and, and different generations and you know. Um, you know, people were really united behind this idea that we could have a more progressive country, a more progressive government. Um, and yet, you know, you also we also I also learned some hard lessons about understanding party politics mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, that even when we ultimately, you know, might have some some of those internal battles, we still have to come together because at the end of the day, you know, our side, the Democrats we are different than Republicans and, you know, we are more closely tied to what the majority wants in the public. You know, I always like to remind people that we, we won the popular vote, more people are with us. So, you know, I, I think we can have these internal discussions, but at the end of the day, we have to, we have to come together. We have to always remember that we are ultimately on the same team, but we also have to open this space up. You know, we have to make sure that, you know, just the, the folks who have, who have always been in these positions, you know, that we that, that they also are able to sort of shake out of the echo chamber a little bit and make sure that they have direct access to hearing people's voices, which I think is something that Indivisible has done so well at being able to hold, you know, everybody from any per- political persuasion, but people in power to hold them accountable and to make sure that, you know, the people's voices are being heard. That is, we're going to have to do that internally while we also are fighting against the Republicans in the Trump administration. Well, there's that uh, standing ovation again. Uh, Shesty <laughs> Conrad, uh, you, you're wonderful. I, I appreciate you taking the time to join us on this show. And uh, we really look forward to uh, seeing the work that you're doing with the uh, the King County Dems. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. And yes, please, you know, please reach out and, and please feel free that this is the county party is a space where we want to continue to hear your voices. So thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to IndivisiblePodcast.org to learn more. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for this show, as always, is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Special thanks to Joshua Trubin this week, and as always, thanks to you guys for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.